All right, we're in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through 25 this morning. We are in a series in the book of Galatians, uh, if you're new with us or haven't been in a while, um, talking about the subject of free, right? That's kind of the theme of Galatians, freedom, the idea that we are free in Christ and what all that entails. And this week, we're going to be talking about what that freedom looks like in relationship to the law. All right, that, doesn't that just sound exciting when I throw out the law, right? The rules, uh, the commands. That you did, you're like, oh, oh, you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, let's talk about grace, right? But to understand grace, we got to understand law, all right? And so our lives are filled with ru- rules at home, at work, in society at large. We have rules, we have laws. Kids are always questioning the rules, right? I've got three. Two of them question the rules. They test the rules. Sometimes they outright rebel against the rules, right? And adults do that too. And they go to a place we call prison, right? And um, when you test the rules and you push against the rules, but uh, if it gets to that point. But usually we're okay with the rules as we mature as long as, as long as we understand three things. We know that they're clearly stated, right? We know what the rules are. They're clearly stated. We're usually okay with them. Two, if they seem fair... We don't like rules that don't seem fair. And three, if they make sense why they're a rule in the first place, right? We, we kind of get squirrely if any of those things are out of place. And they all kind of work together. Well, the Bible's full of rules. It's full of rules. And some people think it's just a big rule book. It's not. But it is full of rules and commands and, more specifically, laws, all right? And things to do, things not to do. The Old Testament in particular Um, which is most of your Bible, by the way, is Old Testament. Sometimes we want to skip past that and just focus on the New Testament, but most of what we got is Old Testament. So that's really important to understand what its place is in our life because it is in particular, in particular, is filled with something that's actually referred to as the law, or we call it the Mosaic law. The most famous portion of that law being the Ten Commandments, right? And we're, if you live in Western civilization, pretty much, you are familiar with the Ten Commandments, even if you're not familiar with them being phrased that way. Um, They are, in a lot of ways, uh, many of them are the backbone of a lot of our civic structure today. Um, Certain things like murder and stealing and things of that nature are considered wrong and come with punishment largely because of the Ten Commandments, right? And so, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not bear false witness, or on a positive side, honor your father and mother, keep the Sabbath. These are rules that have had a huge impact on our society and on our families. But the Mosaic Law actually comes in three parts. So let me just a little brief little theology class for us here. It comes in three parts, ceremonial, civic, and moral. The ceremonial law in the Old Testament is the sacrifices, circumcision, things of that nature. The civic law was like the national laws for Israel, how they were to govern themselves, and the punishments were to be handed down when they broke the law, and things of that nature, how they were to behave as a nation to treat one another and to treat others. But then there was the moral law, God's standard. That's where the Ten Commandments come in. Things like, you shall be holy for I am holy. Things like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. These are what we call moral law, right? These are timeless, eternal truths. Even before God stated them in the Mosaic Law, man, they were already true in the sense of because they reveal to us the very character of God. Murder didn't become wrong because God said don't murder. Murder was wrong from the very beginning because God is a God who has created life, who loves life, and who emanates life, and who gives life, and it's wrong for a human to take it. Murder is not simply wrong because God says don't lie. It was wrong before God said don't lie because God is a God who speaks truth. 
See, anything contra- contrary to the character of God is already, is how we, we already know what sin was and sin is, even before we had laws. So, but then we're going to see this morning why God actually gave the law. But the bottom line this morning is that it's human nature for us to think that we're really not that bad, and when it comes down to it, we're pretty good law keepers or rule keepers. We think when it really comes down to it, we're not that bad at keeping, for instance, the Ten Commandments. We think, well, I didn't break any today. And we get to examine our lives a little more closely or if you use, or if you use Jesus as, the, as, the, um, as the, the thermometer to determine whether or not you have broken those laws. You find out he actually raised the bar on them. But it's easy for us to not feel bad and to feel good about ourselves because there's always somebody else to compare ourselves to that's worse. Did you know that this morning? I mean, somebody on the planet is like the worst person. You know, I don't know who that person is. But there's somebody out there that we would think, yeah, they're worse than I am. They're worse at keeping the rules. They break more of the rules. They break more of God's laws. There's always somebody like that that's worse than you that makes you feel better about yourself because you probably know somebody like that in your life, right? Now, don't cut your eyes. Don't give side eye to your spouse or something like that during this time. But they're the person that makes you feel better about yourself. It's a neighbor. It's a co-worker. It's somebody in your family. You're like, well, I'm not doing great, but I'm doing better than them. But see, the law comes in, and the law gives us a standard that says, no, 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 no. You don't get to compare yourself to this person and that person. Here's the standard. And it's revealing very character of God of perfection and of holiness. And we all, none of us measure up. And it's very important for us to understand this morning that you have to get sick before you can get well. And that's why God gave the law, we're going to see this morning. You have to get dead before you can get resurrected. You have to get lost before you can be found. And at the same time, if you know you're sick, if you know you're spiritually dead, if you know you're lost, but you have no idea that there's hope Or if you think the only hope is to somehow correct your behavior and to make yourself into a better person and to climb yourself out of the hole you've dug yourself into, then that is the definition of misery. That is misery. Well, the law has a great purpose, but it has a limited purpose. It's the standard that God has given so you can stop comparing yourself to your buddy that cheats on his taxes and feeling good about yourself because you don't. It's God's standard. But at the same time, it's not what's going to pull you out of the hole. Paul helps us understand the role of the law by highlighting its purpose, but also showing its place in God's redemptive plan, the big picture. So we're going to kind of walk through the text this morning in terms of steps. Step one, step two, step three. He takes us from Abraham to Jesus through Moses. Okay, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. So look with me in Galatians chapter 3. Let's start with verses 15 uh, down through about verse 18. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, if you just walked in this morning and you just jump into our series and you read that, you're kind of like, what in the world does this have to do with anything, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a little confusing. You're kind of like, what? I'm not sure because this is rooted in the Old Testament and applying it to the New Testament. So we have to kind of backtrack a little bit here. What Paul is doing here is he's picking up where we left off last week talking about Abraham. 
Abraham was the man that God chose from, from him to birth a nation that we know as Israel. Right? And all through the Old Testament, God's chosen people were the Jews, were Israel. And, but the, the, the ultimate goal was always to, to reach more than Israel, right? To, for God's promise to go to the nations, right? And so we see that in the New Testament when Jesus comes onto the scene. But here, Paul is starting with this promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 15. You see more about it in Genesis 17, back all the way in the first book of the Bible. And his point is that the promise of blessing to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, that I'm going to multiply you, that you're going to be mine, right? And, and I'm going to make an entire people from you. That blessing was received by faith, right? God promised him something, and he, re- he believed God, as the Bible says, and it was counted to him, it says in Genesis, as righteousness. Paul quotes that in Genesis, uh, excuse me, in Galatians earlier. And the law of Moses came after the promise. Roughly, he says here, he's pointing to 430 years, and it doesn't nullify the promise. In other words, God made a promise to Abraham that the blessing and that knowing him, being in relationship with him, being his people, eternal life, all of that comes through promise and through, and Abraham believed him, and he received it. It was credited to him as righteous. And then 430 years or so later, Moses comes on the scene. God gives a law, gives the Mosaic law, with the Ten Commandments and the rules. And those rules do not nullify the promise. Now, it's important that we understand the order. So step one, God gave a promise that can't be changed. He gave a promise that can't be changed. Two of the main characters in the Old Testament and in Judaism are Abraham and Moses. Abraham was the father of the nation. Moses was the one through whom God gave Israel the Old Testament law. Now, Paul showed them that Abraham was justified by God by faith a few verses earlier that we talked about last week. And he believed God, and when God made him that promise, it was counted to him as righteousness. So then Moses comes on the scene. Moses is given the rules. He's given the commandments. This is how you're supposed to live. This is what it looks like to be holy. This is what it looks like to be my people. And in this section, Paul is saying the inheritance, the blessing, eternal life, didn't all of a sudden stop coming by the promise through faith and start coming by the rules and now keeping the rules. It didn't ratify God's promise. God doesn't break his promise. The false teachers in Galatia were harassing the Galatians, and they were probably teaching this. The law of Moses came after the promise, and so therefore the law has in a sense replaced the promise. Yeah, God gave a promise to Abraham that was by faith, but then God gave the law. And so you don't just need faith, you also need works. And so you're actually saved by, in a sense, faith and works. And Paul says, no, 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 no. First of all, the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring, and he uses singular to point out through Jesus that Jesus is the ultimate heir of the promise. That there's one offspring in particular that would inherit the promise because he would actually fulfill the law. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he imparts the promise to others. All right? It's his to give. He is the promised one. So he's saying... 400 years after that promise, that law cannot annul the covenant. Now, here's, think about it this way. If your boss comes to you and sits you down and says, listen, you're getting a big promotion and raise at the end of the year. You're like, great, that's awesome. No string attached. I'm, here it is. Here it is on paper. You're getting that. Starts January 1. Awesome. And you find that out in, let's say, April. And then June or July rolls around and the boss says, hey, we've, 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 we've rolled out some new productivity guidelines around the office. And if you meet all the new productivity goals that we're setting, you're going to get that promotion. You still, you've already told me I was going to have that promotion that comes with that. Yeah, but now we've got these guidelines, and you've got, to meet, you've got to meet the goals. Now, would you say that your boss is a promise keeper? 
No, you would say, you moved the ball. You moved the ball. You're yanking me around. This is, this is, this is confusing. I thought I, I thought I understood something, but, but I don't. And what Paul's saying is, God didn't move the ball. The, the promise was always about, relationship with him was always about believing him. And when the rules came, that didn't nullify that or change that. So here's the big picture. The promise of the blessing, of the inheritance, being God's people, knowing God, eternal life, all that, all rolled into that, had no strings attached. It had no conditions. It was not rooted in performance. It was simply believe. And the law, on the other hand, is about doing. Do this and live. Obey this. And in like manner, if salvation is about keeping the law, then it's about doing now. And it's about your work. But salvation is rooted in the promise of Christ. It's about God's work and about believing. God has not moved the ball. Salvation has always been about God's acting, God's promise, not our doing and our acting. God's people were formed from Abraham, not from Moses. Think about it. It started with a promise, not with a law. John Stott says it this way, in the promise, God said, I will, I will, I will, I will. And in the law, God says, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. And a lot of people come to Christianity thinking it's, a, it's thou shalt. When it's really God says, I will. In fact, I have done. Paul is showing us that you can never lay hold of the promise by works because it's not rooted in your doing but God's. You can only lay hold of it by faith. So the first big idea is the promise came first, Right? We have to get our mind around that. Now, step two. Step two is God gave the law to serve his purpose. Verse 19. The question that would be on anybody's mind after hearing this and that would be on the minds of the people in Galatia who are getting all these different angles from false teachers and now you've got Paul sharing with them the truth. Verse 19. Why then the law? <laughs> right? Paul says, that's what you're wondering. Why then the law? Why even give the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come, to whom the promise had been made. We're in verse 19 of chapter 3. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Let's stop there. So, it's natural to look at your old, the Old Testament in your Bible and go, why do we have this? You tell me I'm saved by grace through faith, that Jesus has done it all and I simply need to believe in him, so why do I have the Ten Commandments? Why do I have the rules? Why do we have law? Why? If obeying the rules doesn't get me into heaven, then why have rules at all? Well, traditionally, the law has been described in three ways, right? This isn't original with me. Um, somebody phrased it in this way somewhere along the way. But as a mirror, a curb, and a guide. Let me explain. The law is a mirror. It shows us, reveals to us, God's holiness that we talked about earlier, the standard. In so doing, it reveals to us how, fall, how far short we fall of the standard. We see, we look at the law, we look at that moral, the moral beauty of the law, we see God's perfect standard of holiness, and we see how far we fall short. But it's also a curb, right? Think about a curb, like on the side of the road, keeping society from running amok through fear and intimidation of punishment. You break the law, you reap the punishment. Consequences, curbing people's sinful appetites to a degree. And then we talk about the law as a guide. The believer in Christ uses the moral law to understand how God desires for us to live in the power of the Spirit, to live in obedience and heartfelt gratitude. And it should be noted, it can really only be a God 
for the believer. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. So here Paul says it was added because of transgressions. So what's he talking about here? What does that mean? It was added because of transgressions. Well, it can speak to the law's use as a curb or a restraint. But that doesn't seem to be the context here when you read the rest of the verse. I think here he's talking about the law as a mirror, as the revealer of our sin. Listen to what he says in Romans 5.20. If you think this is, a, this is very interesting language in Romans 5.20. I think it's on the screen for you. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, Paul says. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul says, God gave the law to increase the trespass. What? The law shows us just how sinful we already were. The law doesn't come in and make a bad thing better. It makes a bad thing worse in a lot of ways. Because it shows us just how sinful we are. And we're more and more in debt to our sin. And the sins begin to pile up because we're that sinful. One of the purposes of the law, Martin Luther would have said, the chief purpose of the law is that the trespass increase. In other words, to reveal just how sinful we really are. See, you find out more about someone when you give them responsibility. Right? You give somebody some rules to follow. You begin to find out things about their character. And God lays down the law, and you find out just how sinful His people were. And we look at the law, even today, and we find out just how sinful we really are when we look at the moral standards that God's laid down. See, the problem is people don't want to be told how to live. I heard somebody say it this way. Nobody, nobody has a problem with God until He speaks. <laughs> people don't want to be told that there's a standard that they can't set. We like to, You don't want to go to the gym tomorrow and somebody else say, now here's your workout plan. You're going to lift these weights. Well, I can't lift those weights. Well, that's what you've got to lift. You're going to run this fast on the treadmill. I can't run that fast on the treadmill. Too bad. You've got to run that fast. We don't like, that's it's human nature. We just, we push against that, right? We don't want buff the stuff telling us how to do our workout regimen. We want to set the pace, which is like January 2nd, and then I take a break, right, to like January 2nd of next year. We, we, don't, we don't want somebody else telling us how to live, making choices for us. The law is God saying, Here's what it means to be holy. Be holy. And we go, oh, what? <laughs> I can't do that. And people dig their heels in and they begin to make their own rules. They begin to reword the rule. Maybe God didn't mean that. He surely wasn't taking in my circumstances to account. And it just reveals, like a mirror, how wicked we are. That's a word you don't hear a lot today in church. Wicked. <laughs> like, whoa. Don't call people wicked. They won't come back, right? We don't understand we're wicked. It don't do us much good to come back. This is where it starts. God gave the law so that we might know we're wicked, that we're sinful. Compared to what? Our neighbor? No, compared to God and His standard. That's the problem. We don't think we're sinful. We don't think we're wicked because we compare ourselves to somebody who's more wicked. But God says, here's the standard. When you look at the Ten Commandments, we see our shortcomings in our sin, for instance. It says we shall not lie, but we've all lied. It says we shall have no other gods before the Lord God, and our hearts are filled with idols, easily. It says not to murder, and our hearts are filled with anger and hatred, the very seed of murder. And the transgression increases as the law demands perfection, which we can't attain. Now notice the key word, until. The law came and did this until. 
until the offspring came. The promise was made to, and that was Christ. The offspring the promise was made to. Who? Christ. As the offspring of Abraham, he is the rightful heir to the promise. The law was until his coming. The law is a connector, not a savior. It has a role, but it's not the star. It has a purpose, but it's not the point. It is, however, part of God's redemptive plan. It's only by seeing how far we fall short of God's glory and God's standard that we will look to the offspring, the Savior, the Lord Jesus. See, notice the law was given by angels through an intermediary. He's trying to show here how the promise is is better, how it's more primary. He's saying God used angels in some way in delivering the law. And it has an intermediary, a mediator. Who was that? Moses. In other words, in the law, God didn't deal directly with the people, but through angels and through Moses. And then he says, and the Lord is one. Now that's from the Shema. That's from the Old Testament. That's from where God says, the Lord your God is one. The oneness of God. What is he saying here? He seems to be pointing to this. In salvation and in dealing with his people redemptively, God deals with them directly. But the law, God dealt with There was angels involved in some way that we don't necessarily fully understand. Moses is given the law, who's just a man like us. Somebody that can't keep the law just like us. And the insinuation this is in this. In Christ, God dealt directly because in Christ, God came himself. Unlike Moses, Jesus is God in the flesh. And see, in salvation, as it's been said, in matters of love... One must go themselves. In salvation, God came Himself and kept the promise. The promise is before the law, but the law has a purpose, but it cannot thwart the purpose of the promise. Moses cannot replace the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is greater than Moses. Hebrews will go into much greater detail on that. Look at verse 21. Verses 21 through verse 24. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified faith. So the next natural question, since these things are so different, why then the law? Now the next question is, well, don't they contradict each other? This seems kind of like it doesn't fit. Is God confused? What's going on? He says, no, no, no. The law has a purpose. The law was never meant to save you. In fact, if a law had been given that could give life, he says, then you would be made right with God by the law. But that's not what happened. As one commentator put it, the law entered that it might fail. (laughs) It couldn't give life. It didn't give life. In fact, he says the law imprisoned. You see that language? The scriptures imprisoned everything under sin. It's similar to last week when he talks about we're all under the curse of the law because of our sin. The law, in revealing our inability to keep it and our sinfulness, has imprisoned us there. Rather than save, rather than give access to the blessing to the Jews, it limited it to one of them. (laughs) The only one that could keep it. It imprisoned so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to all who believe. In other words, we're stuck when we look at the law. 
were declared guilty. Locked up, imprisoned. Guilty. Locked away. And then the, the one offspring, though, receives the promise. That's Jesus. And then in turn, all gain access to the promise by faith in Him. That's what Paul is showing us here. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, we believe God by believing on Christ and it's counted to us as righteousness. He even says we were held captive and imprisoned. The point is that the law did not bring life. It did not bring freedom. These false teachers were saying the law brings spiritual life. It will help you grow and mature and become more complete. He's going, no, no, no. It has no it's not bringing spiritual life. No, the law locked you up. <laughs> it locked you up. Timothy George does a great job of explaining how in their day he was using their own thought against them. They thought of the law like a fence. It kept certain people out and kept them protected, kept them holy, kept them clean, right? And then on the other side were the people that didn't obey the rules, that didn't obey the law, and they were distinct from them. So it set a boundary, set a fence and say, God's people in here, not God's people out there. And as Timothy George put it, what Paul is saying is then if you'll open your eyes and look, that fence has barbed wire around the top and it's prison. And what you thought was just simply protecting you has also imprisoned you because you have not been able to keep it. And it's shown you just how sinful you really are. But he also says the law is a guardian. You see that? It was our guardian until Christ came. The key word in the passage is that, is that Greek word for guardian. It's kind of a difficult word to translate. And to be honest, most of the translations, most people will tell you, don't get it quite right because it's kind of hard to nail down in our culture because we don't see this as much. But the Greek word is, is, or a transliteration of it, is pedagogue. This was a person that oversaw a child. It was usually a slave in a family that oversaw a child and made sure he learned the rules, the manners. I think one commentator said they usually would take over about the age of six from the nanny, and they would raise them up through adolescence. And this was the person, it, it, it protected them, it shielded them in some ways, but in a lot of ways, this was the person that was like, no, you don't eat like that at the table. No, these are the rules. This is, what it, this is how you function in society. And they were usually kind of pictured as a pretty, when you read history, as a pretty strict disciplinarian. This was the person that would inflict Punishment if you didn't keep the rules. Stern disciplinarian. And that's the law, Paul says. It lays down the rules and the punishments for doing wrong. Paul talked about the curse of the law last week. The condemnation incurred because we don't keep it. The law reveals and reminds us of our shortcomings and our guilt. But only until Christ, he says. Only until Christ. So what we see is the law had a purpose, but the purpose was limited. The law simply put, helps man to see who he really is before God. That's what the law, that's the ultimate purpose. That's, there's more than that, as we talked about earlier. But the ultimate purpose, where we have to really begin is to understand the law shows us who we really are before a holy God. Step three, God sent his son that we might be saved. So God gave a promise that can't be changed, that he didn't break. He sends the law that has a purpose, and then he sends Jesus was always his plan to sin, but at the right time. Next week, Paul will tell us, just the right time, born under the law, comes Jesus, right? Jesus enters the scene. Verse 24 and 25, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The order matters. The promise came first. We're not saved by the law. 
But man must learn he's a sinner before he can look to Christ by faith. Now, rather than being prisoners, he says we're children of God, sons of God, children of God by faith. But you only become a child of God through faith in Jesus, and you won't look to Jesus in faith until you see yourself first and see your need for a Savior. So when we look to Jesus, what we see, first of all, we see the promise has been kept. The promise has been kept. The Scripture imprisoned everything under the law so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. The promise is acceptable by faith in Jesus. God's kept His promise. In Jesus, we see He's a a God of blessing, a God who saves, a God who grants life, a God who He brings people into His family through Jesus. But in Jesus, we also see the law has been fulfilled. Jesus is the only one who has been able to keep the law. He's the only one who is sinless. He's the only one who didn't break any of the Ten Commandments, so to speak. We could not keep the law God sent by angels and Moses to us, so God himself came and kept the law for us. That's what happened in Jesus. He is the God-man. And Jesus frees us from the imprisonment that the law has locked us up in. Where we were prisoners under sin, reminded of our shortcomings and our failures, Jesus releases us and makes us his children, and we leave the prison yard and we enter the house of God as sons instead of prisoners and slaves, but as children of God. That's what happens in the gospel. When we realize that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, lived a sinless life, lived righteously in my place, and then died the death on the cross that I deserve to die as a lawbreaker, as a sinner. As someone who has broken God's law, I deserve the consequences of my sin. I des- and I have sinned against an omnipotent, eternal, perfectly holy being. And that deserves eternal punishment. One sin against Him deserves eternal punishment. Because He's an eternally holy God. And Jesus steps in and He bears that sin for me. And He bears that curse for me. He bears the wrath of God for me. And he could do it because he is God in the flesh. Only God in the flesh could perfectly pay for our sins in that way. I couldn't die for you like that. Moses couldn't die for you like that. The apostle Paul couldn't die for you like that. Only Jesus could do that. The Bible tells us he rose from the dead for our justification. Proving in fact that when he said it's finished, it's finished. Now, when we place our faith in Jesus, his finished work, We're freed from the law's imprisonment. And he enables us to obey God from the heart. That's important to understand this morning. Some may ask this. If we're free, if the law came to show us we are sinful, does this mean we can live in sin and just be excited we're going to heaven and live however we want to and indulge in whatever behavior of sin and just wanton lust that we want to engage in? And Paul will address this later more clearly in chapters 4 and 5, but the short answer is no. Jesus changes our hearts and enables us to actually obey God from the heart. And the moral law actually becomes helpful to us. Remember we talked about it as a God? See, for the believer in Christ, the law is transformed for us. It's no longer imprisoning us as a harsh guardian when it's viewed rightly. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Because of the change Jesus brings, because we're walking in freedom, the commands of God are no longer burdensome. They are pleasant and sweet. That's why when you can read the Psalms, man, David is just like rejoicing in God's law. Read Psalm 19. Oh God, your law is perfect and wonderful. And Paul's over here is like, it's imprisoned you. You know, like there's a disconnect. It's like, no. Paul's talking about different purposes of the law. 
And David's showing it kind of as that guy because David was looking forward in faith to the promise that God had gave and he could see it that way. But when you're trying to justify yourself by the law, when your eyes aren't looking to Jesus, the one who fulfilled it in faith, man, you're just chained up. You're just imprisoned. You just know how guilty you are. And the commands of God are burdensome. But in Christ, they're pleasant. And that word becomes a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path to direct you and to show you what it looks like to please God and how God wants me to live. And you want to live that way. Out of gratitude with joy, not out of mere obligation. Now here's the thing. That's a lot this morning. So let me give you three very quick takeaways to help us just kind of root this into our lives. You can even say they're warnings. Number one, if we want to see Jesus in all his beauty, we must see ourselves in all our mess. If we want to see Jesus in all his glory and all his beauty, see him for who he is, then we have to see ourselves in all of our mess and brokenness. Saviors are only seen as saviors by people who need saving. (laughs) There may be people here this morning, could be people in the room this morning, who actually claim to be Christians, but who are not Christians. In fact, statistically, I believe there likely is people in the room this morning who claim to be Christians, who are in fact not Christians. And one of the ways you can tell is Jesus is not beautiful. Jesus is not glorious to you. Jesus is not wonderful to you. He does not evoke true worship from you. You view Him kind of like Paul described the law. He seems like a prison to you. Like a harsh disciplinarian. You know, you're here because you feel like you should be. You go through the motions. You say the right things, but your heart does not swell with gratitude when we sing songs about the cross. Your heart does not rejoice when we sing about the resurrection. When God, you open God's Word, it doesn't seem sweet to your lips. Instead, it just feels like this it's drudge. Say, why is it? It may be because you're not saved. You're not saved. He hasn't changed you. you and it may be because you've never seen yourself for who you are. You've never looked in the mirror long enough. See, in our culture, we're told, man, don't examine your faults too long. Move past it. Get over it. My fear is some of us haven't looked in the mirror of God's Word long enough to see who we really are. We move too quickly, so we never repent. We move too fast. And we don't sit and we don't go, who am I, God? God seems distant. And your sin seems small. Because you've never seen God for who He is. We have been conditioned the wrong way. So we don't see Jesus with clear eyes. Is that you this morning? If we want to see Jesus in all His beauty, we've got to see ourselves in all our mess. Number two, if we do not walk by faith in Jesus, we will not experience freedom and joy in our Christian obedience. We've talked a lot about walking by faith the last few weeks. You will not experience freedom where there there is no gospel, no grace in your walk, no eyes on Jesus, no walking by faith. There is no freedom. There is only what feels like chains. You will revert back. You will find yourself experiencing the prison, not freedom. You can only experience God's commands in a freeing sense when you're looking to Jesus by faith and walking by faith. We get our eyes off Him we'll quickly begin to try to justify ourselves 
and we'll feel imprisoned because we can't. You will not experience joyful obedience. God will feel like a taskmaster to you. You'll have a joyless list of do's and don'ts. And it's because you're not walking by faith in Jesus. You're going a broken route. And you're going to reap a broken life. And broken lots of consequences. There's a big difference in have to and want to. It's night and day, right? There's a big difference in I have to do this and I want to do this, right? And walking by faith makes all the difference. Nobody wants to have to do anything. You know what I have to do? Sometimes I have to make a Walmart run. I hate that. I hate Walmart. Man, no offense. Now, Costco. I could spend days in Costco. You could spin me around, send me in there, give me food to eat, right? Send me in. I could, I, I'm, I'm just like, it's, you know, I just, I, want, I just, I enjoy it. I don't know why. I don't know why. Both, I'm doing the same thing in both. I'm shopping, right? Usually just not really knowing what I'm doing because I'm a horrible shopper. But I'm doing the same task. But it feels different. There's a lot of things in life like that. Sometimes you just feel, ugh, you have to. Oh, I want to. And you can be doing the exact same thing. And trying to obey God can feel like have to or it can feel like want to. And the difference is faith in Jesus and walking by faith in Jesus. Thirdly, we'll never reach people if they don't know they are sinners. We'll only drive them away if they only know they are sinners. We'll never reach people if they don't know they are sinners and we'll only drive them away if they only know they are sinners. People need to know the standard. Listen, we preach grace here. We preach gospel here. And we also preach judgment here. And we preach sin here. Why? Because grace and gospel makes no sense. It's irrelevant for your life apart from sin and judgment. We preach the gospel incorrectly when we remove sin and we remove judgment and we it's not relevant to your life. God becomes a cosmic genie to help you fulfill your dreams. And listen, when we're sharing with others, we have to be honest that Jesus isn't your personal dream machine. Simply here to make life better for you. He's a savior sent to rescue you from guilt, shame, darkness, and death. And at the same time, if we are simply the hammer over the head, the law bringer, corporately or personally, if you're the person that runs around simply pointing out sin, you will drive people away. They see you as a prison warden that reminds them of their guilt. This applies to parenting as well. I'm learning. Got a lot to learn. There's a place for law in our parenting. Our kids need to know the rules. They need to know the consequences. They need to know God's standard for holiness. They need to hear, obey thy father and mother, honor thy father and mother. But they also need grace and they need gospel. And the law is to serve the promise, to drive people to the promise, not replace it. And graceless, gospelless, Jesusless parenting will drive our kids both from us and from God. And they will view your home like a prison that they can't wait to get out of. That's what the law will do when there's no gospel. This is applicable in all sorts of areas. All sorts of areas. This is why some Christians have no friends. That's why some Christians aren't... You say, oh, people don't like me to talk about my faith at work. No, it's, sometimes it's not that. It's the way. It, it's because you don't actually talk about your faith. You just talk about the law. You just talk about the rules. 
We have, to, we have to give grace. We have to show them the gospel. And some people, we have to revert back. We, have to, we, have, we do have to point out things. We have to show them with God's word their guilt. Because a savior doesn't make sense to people that don't think they need saving. So promise, law, and Christ. That's the big subjects this morning. Jesus is the star. The promise kept, the law fulfilled. The Savior we need, and we can only lay hold of Him by faith. He changes us, changes how we view God, changes how we view God's law. What a Savior. Let's pray.